And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. How do you know you can trust your eyes and what you've read? What makes you sure you can believe your ears and what you've been told? How many times have you trusted someone or believed in something only to have that trust betrayed and your belief proven futile? How do you know that the story of Jesus isn't a myth, a lie, or just some fairy tale designed to tickle your ears? There was a man who did the research, interviewed eyewitnesses, and verified the claims. This man was educated and honest, and his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? Excellent. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 17. Certainty in a world of doubt. We're going to talk about faith this morning. Grab your sermon notes out also. A little nun was on a much-desired mission assignment to the Apache Indians. She was so excited that she drove past the last gas station without noticing that she needed gas. She ran out of gas about a mile down the road and had to walk back to the station. The attendant told her that uh, he would like to help her, but he had no container to hold the gas. Uh, Sympathetic to her plight, he agreed to search through an old shed in the back for something that might suffice. The only container that would hold fuel was an old bed pan. The grateful nun told him that the bedpan would work just fine. She carried the gasoline back to her car, taking care not to drop an ounce. When she got to her car, she carefully poured the contents of the bedpan into the tank. A truck driver pulled alongside the car as the nun was emptying the container into the tank. He rolled down his window and yelled to her, I wish I had your faith, sister. Yeah. Have you ever wished you had as much faith as someone else? What are the characteristics of someone who has uh, exceptional faith? That's what we're going to look at here. uh, Look at your sermon notes. Let me kind of walk you through this intro as it relates to uh, what does the Bible have to say about faith? A lot, okay? Here's just a sampling. We are saved through faith, Ephesians 2.8. It is by faith that we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, Hebrews 11.3. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews 11.6. Those who are of faith are blessed, Galatians 3.9. Blessed means total fulfillment, complete well-being. So if, that's, if you want that, it comes through the kind of the channel of faith, that is faith in God as we will see. The righteous will live by faith, Romans 1.17, we walk by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5.7, faith apart from works is dead, James 2.26, faith comes from hearing the word of Christ, Romans 10.17, do I need to stop there? Yeah, probably, but there's plenty more, there's a whole lot more, so this is really a, an important topic, it's really an important biblical topic, and you'll see that we'll spend a number of weeks just on this topic of faith, the whole chapter 7 is what we're heading into 
of the Gospel of Luke. The whole chapter 7 is about faith. And so we've got the definition of faith in verses 1 through 10. And then we have the object of faith in verses 11 through 17. That's what we're going to deal with this morning. We're going to look at those and answer those two questions. What is the definition? Who's the object? And then we're going to take a break next weekend because it's Easter weekend, and we're going to look at how uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection show us how we can get through days of, of pain, perplexity, and rising into days of joy. You look at Good Friday, a day of pain. We all are going to experience pain. Jesus gives us a great, uh, um, not just a model, but a means to how we can deal with our pain. And then Saturday is a day of perplexity for the disciples. They're like wondering, what is this all about? And then we've got the third day, which is the day, the resurrection, where the day of great joy. And how do you work through those and get to that point? And then we're going to come back the following week. You will come back the following week after Easter, won't you? Okay. I hope you do. And I ought to say that on Easter weekend, though, shouldn't I? But uh, we'll come back and we're going to talk about the struggle of faith, how we struggle with faith, the doubt, the questions that we have that bombard us, and then we'll look at the product of faith the week after that. So that's kind of where we're headed with uh, over the next uh, few weeks. Let's begin with a prayer once again. Would you bow your heads with me? So we open our hearts to God and, have, and invite Him to speak to us through His Word. Almighty Eternal Father, we love spending time with you, knowing you, and growing in our relationship with you as your redeemed children lavished with your love. As Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 exhort us, help us to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, as, as you, through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, fortify, strengthen, grow our faith, as we hear, study, reflect on your invaluable and infallible word, we pray these things in Jesus' holy and beautiful name, and everyone said... Amen. So let me read through the text. I'll comment just very briefly as we work through this. There's some things that probably need to be explained. But I'm going to read uh, 17 verses here, chapter 7, and uh, starting in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. What were his sayings? We just finished up with the Sermon on the Mount. It was Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you were not here, I would encourage you to uh, get our DB app, listen to those two messages Jesus taught us some really great relational skills. Talked about true community, talked about integrity, talked about the personal wholeness that we need if we're gonna have healthy relationships, and so that's where he finished up. Now we're heading into faith. Now a centurion, this is verse two, now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Now a centurion, these guys were the backbone of the Roman military. Uh, the war machine of Rome. And so you had the emperor, and the emperor had generals, and under those generals were centurions who were over 100 men, which that's what that means, centurion. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, <clears throat> he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, now notice how they approached Jesus, and they appealed uh, to Jesus based on, uh, on something here, as you will see. Um, 
asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. And they're going to go through and, hey, he's, you know, he's worthy for you to, to bring this miraculous healing to his servant. So they have a kind of belief, a belief system here that we'll come back to and talk about. And they go on to explain, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built, our, built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent his friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. Notice his perspective, and he's got a totally different belief system. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and, and to my servant, do this, and he does, does it. And when Jesus heard these words, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such, what's the word there? Faith. faith. Not found such faith. He's, going to, he's defining for us. We're going to look at this, and he's going to define for us what faith is. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So that's, it helps us to define faith. This next uh, story is going to show us the object of our faith. And soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him, and as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Stop there just for a minute. I want the, the weight of that, that one verse right there to hit you. So here's a, here's a woman who's lost her spouse, lost her husband, she's a widow, and now she has lost her son. I, I actually believe that perhaps the most tragic thing that you can ever experience is to have to bury a child. Parents aren't supposed to bury their kids. She's devastated. Just take a moment, let that sink in. Since the beginning of the year, we've had two families bury kids in our congregation. A six-month-old and a 30-year-old. I'm telling you, it rocks your world. That's the reality of it. And it takes quite a bit of time to get through the grief and work through that. We also have a, a wife who is burying her husband after 56 years as he, the last, I don't know how many years he struggled with cancer. It was, it was pretty torturous. So you get a little bit of a glimpse. There, there's, some, there's some tragedy here. There's tragedy in life. But I, I want to take you to the next verse because the next verse is just, it's just absolutely powerful. It's just, it brought tears to my eyes as I began to reflect on it and think about it. And I would encourage you to do that also. Listen to this. And when the Lord saw her, we have a God who sees. He knows. 
He cares. I mean, that's, that's the idea here. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. That's, it's really powerful. I, if you just took that and just uh, kind of reflect on it and say, God, what do you want to speak to me through this? There's a number of things that I think that we can learn here. And uh, the word compassion here is, uh, best definition is, uh, is, is really just a gut punch. I mean, it's, it, the word is, is, speaks of our bowel, and it speaks of just almost kind of like it's a, it's a shot to the gut. If you've ever gotten one of those dreaded phone calls or went to the doctor and got the, the bad news, bad diagnosis, it, it takes the wind out of you. It just knocks you, and that's really what it's saying, that our Savior, we have a Savior that knows our hurt and pain. He, he understands that. That's that word compassion. In fact, it tells us Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the only shepherd who knows what it's like to be a sheep. And, uh, and the very fact that he, he knows, cares, and rules is enough. If you can understand that, that'll get you through anything. You can face anything. You can face something as, as tragic as, as what this woman is facing. Uh, and there's other verses that help us to understand that. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, it actually defines God. He's a father of compassion, a God of all comfort. So not only does his heart break when our hearts are broken, but he moves in alongside of us to support us, to help us, to be there for us, to give us what we need. That's what you see with Jesus. He, was, he had compassion on her and said to her, so he moves in close to her and says, don't weep. I'm, I'm here, I'm for you. I love what it says in Psalm 147, three through four. In fact, maybe you're here this morning and you're going through a real hard time. This would be for you. <laughs> Listen to me. This is the reality of this verse. The one who names and numbers the stars can heal your broken heart and bind up your wounds. That's what it tells us in Psalm 147, three through four. That's what those verses are telling us. Take comfort in that. You have a savior that understands, he knows, he cares, he rules, and you're gonna see his, how he rules. You can see his power in these verses. And, and then in verse 14, then he came up and touched the beer. That's interesting. What is that? It's a, it's a casket stand. It's the casket was on the, on the stand. He touches that, and the, and the bearer stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. I mean, this had to have been the, the greatest day of, of her life. Now notice this, fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people, and this report about him spread through the whole of Judea in all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord to us. Okay, so we've got some work to do. Let's talk about the definition of faith, verses 1 through 10. Here's the first uh, on your outline, first fill in the blank. Everyone has faith. Everyone has faith, whether you're Christian or Muslim or even if you're an atheist. You have faith. You have a belief system. Just because you don't believe in God, it doesn't mean you don't have at 
the same time a set of beliefs that are just as deep and fundamental to your life. Everyone is betting their life and eternity on something. Atheists are betting their life and eternity on the fact that there isn't a God and we don't stand before the judgment seat of God and that when life is over, it's over. That's what they're betting on based on their belief system, based on whatever set of facts that they might have. And so we all have a belief system. You have to believe in something. You can't live unless you have some sort of a belief system. That's what, how God wired us up. He wired us in such a way that we have to have some sort of sense of purpose or direction. Everyone ultimately has to answer these three questions, origin, purpose, and destiny. Our origin, where do we come from? Purpose, why are we here? Destiny, where are we going? And, and you've either answered that purposefully through research or you are doing it by default. Now, what's fascinating about this story is that the elders of the Jews believe that if you sin, you owe God, and if you live a good life, God owes you, because they said in verse four, he is worthy for you to do this for him. The centurion doesn't believe that. He has a different belief system. Verse six, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. So you can see there are two belief systems working that are opposite, they're opposing each other. Here's the second point under the definition of faith. Our, our belief system is best revealed in crisis. Our faith is best revealed in crisis. That's your next fill in the blank. Verses two through three, we see that. The centurion doesn't call for Jesus until there's a problem. His highly valued servant is at his point of death. He's, he's disturbed by that, and so he calls for Jesus. He's heard stories about Jesus. He calls for Jesus. We don't start asking the big questions, the, the question of origin, purpose, and destiny until something goes wrong. Typically, it's one of the reasons why, I mean, I, loved, I love uh, weddings, love weddings, probably a good thing that I love weddings, huh? but, uh, but I, I, I think I actually like preaching at funerals better than weddings. That might sound crazy because usually at weddings, nobody pays attention. <laughs> it's so frustrating. And you know, I'll, I'll lay out the gospel, but everybody's just, ah, this is so wonderful, you know, and, and it truly is, but uh, hey, listen up. You need to hear the gospel, you know, but most people don't. But it, I'll, I'll tell you what, funerals, they're listening. They're paying attention. You got a captive audience there that's just, they're captivated by, okay, well, what's this about? And, and sorting, as, as we sort through that. I love what uh, C.S. Lewis says from Screwtape Letters. Uh, Screwtape Letters is a fiction book in which a senior devil is writing a junior devil to give him advice on how to tempt human beings in one of the letters where the senior devil says this, look, if you have a client who is starting to think maybe there is a God, maybe there is a Jesus, maybe these things are true, or maybe the Bible is right, for goodness sakes, don't argue with them. Don't get his reason going. Don't get him to ask the big questions. Get him busy in life. Get him busy with the hustle and the bustle. Show him the bus going by. Show him the papers uh, being sold on the street. Get him busy. That's the ticket to spiritual blandness. Isn't that interesting? We don't want to answer those tough questions until we're faced with the loss of a loved one are going to the funeral, and then we begin to have to think seriously, unless we try to, and, and many people just medicate themselves. I don't want to have to deal with that. They just drink it, drink it away, whatever, pills, whatever it might be. Chase their workaholism or, or their pursuit of vacations and, 
and all of those things and toys. So it's best revealed in crisis. That is our faith. Now, if we are, if we are created by God, which I believe we are created by God for God to give glory to God, then then the vague emptiness we feel when things are good apart from God will become undeniable when things are bad. They will become undeniable when things are bad. The bad times don't create the emptiness, they just reveal it. So if you were honest with yourself, if you were really honest with yourself, and if you don't know Christ, there's a vague emptiness deep inside of you that there's nothing in this world will satisfy. But it's even more so revealed to us during crisis and difficulty. Wow, there's an emptiness inside of me. Yes, only he can satisfy that, that emptiness. Now let me give you three elements of saving faith. What is it that actually satisfies that emptiness here? Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the faith chapter. It starts off by giving us a definition of faith. And so basically this is from the faith chapter, these three uh, elements of saving faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Here's the first one is knowledge, knowledge about God. Knowledge about God, this is content. So verse 3a, when the centurion heard about Jesus, so he heard things about Jesus. He was intrigued. Now, there are atheists, there are people that don't believe in God that think that Christianity, in Christianity, we have committed intellectual suicide. They go, you guys, you guys don't even think. It's, it's brainless. Listen to me, that's not faith. Faith is not committing intellectual suicide. It's not some brainless pursuit where you commit intellectual suicide. You, you, you better not. You better put your thinking cap on. You better start thinking. Faith is not a blind leap into a dark chasm. It's a step into the light. It's about revelation. It's about insight. It's about truth about who God is. So it's based on knowledge. And, and you guys know this, you can, you can know a lot about God and not know God. Does that make sense? And not have a relationship with him. You can know a lot of verses, you can know a lot about morality and not know God, not have a relationship with God. But you can't have a relationship with God, you can't know him intimately without knowledge about him. Does that make sense? Yeah. So there's information about him that you need to know if you're going to grow in your intimacy with him, if you're going to know him. And the best place is obviously God's word, because you have to ask yourself, so how do, how do we understand God? Well, it's certainly not by human speculation, that'll get you into trouble, but it's by divine revelation. God has revealed himself to us, and so you've got to ask the question, well, how has he revealed himself to us? Well, he, the Bible says he's revealed himself to us through creation. Psalm 19, Romans 1 makes that very clear. But he's also revealed himself to us through his word. He wrote it down for us. This is an infallible, inspired word that we study week in and week out. It's proved itself to be that. Plenty of evidence for that, by the way. And then ultimately, he has revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ. He showed up here in the flesh. So we know that, and that's how we get to know him. And so there are truths about God that you need to know. Otherwise, you're just making it up as you go. It's just a, God is a figment of your imagination. But you need to know the truth about God if you're gonna know him intimately. And so you need to have this knowledge. And in fact, your heart cannot be inflamed about some, someone you don't know. If you want your heart inflamed by God, you need to get to know him. But the, but it's got to go beyond that. Here's the next one. The next one is belief 
that it is true. So it goes from knowledge about God, that's the content, to belief that it is true, that's conviction. I gave you a lot of cross-references there. You're gonna have to study those on your own as you work through the growing notes this next week. But verse 3b, he sent to him elders asking him to come and heal his servant. So he'd heard about Jesus, so he's got some knowledge about Jesus. Now he believes it's true, so he's got this conviction and he, he sent his elders asking him to come and heal his servant. Verse seven, he, he says, in fact, a little bit more about this conviction. Just say the word and let my servant be healed. Verse eight, for I too am a man under, set under authority. So th- what does that tell us about the centurion? Well, there's two things. He believes that Jesus is good because uh, he's healing people. Oh my goodness, that's, that's wonderful. And if he's healing people, he, he's, a, he's good. He's a good guy. And he has wise love. He's very wise and he's very loving. That's part of that goodness. But he's also great. He's got unlimited power. So those are the two things that this centurion believes. But that's, that's still not enough. Why is knowing and believing the content of Christian faith not enough? Because, and, and, and some people's faith, I've heard people say, oh, I'm a Christian, and all they do is they have knowledge about God, they don't have intimacy with God, or they might believe the truths about God, but that doesn't, that's not enough. Why is that not enough? James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Woo, yes, you've arrived at the level of a demon? Yes, yes, you've got demonic faith because they believe God, they believe the content about God is true. In fact, they do more than what most people do. They shudder. Here's the next one. It's gotta take you to trust. So you got knowledge, belief, so you got content, conviction, and then commitment. Trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. See, you can reason to a point of probability beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus is who he says he is and he did what he said he came to do, came to die for us, for our sins, to to reconcile us to the Father. You can reason to a point of probability beyond a reasonable doubt that all of that is true, but listen to me, it takes commitment to lead to certainty. At some point you gotta go, "I'm, I'm going for it. I'm giving my life to him. I'm, I'm putting all of my trust in him. That's, that's the point here. Look what it says here in verse four. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. So there's their belief system. What were they trusting? What were they trusting? Turn to the person next to you and ask them, uh, what were the religious people trusting in? They weren't trusting in Jesus. They were trusting in something other than Jesus. This was part of their belief system. Real quick, do that. Okay, this is, what, this is your answer, you guys ready? Okay, your answer is that they were trusting in their own moral virtue, in their good works. Anybody get that? Okay, like just a half dozen of us. Boy, you better pay attention then. What I'm saying here is really, really important. They were trusting in their good works. Oh, he's, he's worth it, man. He's worthy to have you do good stuff for him because he's a good guy. That's that's righteousness by good works. That's, a, uh, that's moralism. It's called religion. And, uh, 
It's, the, it's really different from the gospel. By the way, there's, there's really only three ways that you can live. And all, everybody on this planet are living one of these three ways. There's irreligion, there's religion, and then there's the gospel. You're in one of those three categories. Now, what happens is that people will move from irreligion, and they think that they got the gospel, but it's actually religion. It's a form of moralism. So, so irreligion is, uh, is kind of basically self-discovery. I don't need God. I'll do it on my own. Religion would be in the category of a lot of the major religions that we have in our world today, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormonism, Roman Catholicism, you know, a lot of these uh, different things like that would be kind of that religious system. Not to say that there aren't Roman Catholics that know Jesus. I'm not saying that, but uh, well, I won't even get into that right now. But, but what you need to understand is that that's, there's a belief system of works righteousness. I have to work to be right with God. And, you, and this, this guy, the centurion, it, it's fascinating. Listen to what it says here. So verses seven, 6 through 7, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but say the word and let my servant be healed. The centurion isn't trusting in his moral virtue, otherwise he would have said, I'm not worthy, worthy to have you heal my servant. He doesn't say that. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word, I still want you to heal my servant. So what is he doing here? He's appealing to something else. He's appealing for Jesus to heal his servant not based on his goodness, but on Christ's goodness and greatness. Verse nine, Jesus says when, uh, it says this, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. If you don't get this, you're going to miss what the gospel's all about. This is the most, most profound, most significant thing that you can learn. And most American Christians don't understand the distinction between the two. They've embraced moralism and religion, and they don't understand the gospel. Jesus, and in this story, Luke is helping us to understand the gospel between the response of these two. Saving faith is not simply a general belief in Jesus, by the way. See, it is, it is transferring your basic and fundamental life trust from your goodness to Christ's goodness. I am saved not based on my goodness, but because of Christ's goodness. It is trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Christ becomes, listen to me, Christ becomes your ultimate hope, your ultimate meaning, your ultimate happiness, your ultimate security, your ultimate significance, your ultimate satisfaction. He becomes your all. He is not a means to an end. He's the end. He is not part of your life like you add him to your life. Now you can be successful because you've got him part of your life like an accessory to your car so that your car performs better in some way. That's crazy. That's not the gospel. The deepest and most durable satisfaction is not found from God but in God. He owns your heart's deepest loyalties and affections. See, that's what trust is. So there's, there's things true about God. You believe those things and you give him your life. You trust him. So, so faith is more than an agreement with facts in the head. It's an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all other appetites. 
You've been swept off of your feet by a love unlike you have ever experienced before. I mean, this is, there is no love like his love for us. There's no freedom, there's no liberty like the kind of freedom and liberty that he brings. There's a life and a quality of life that can be found in him that cannot be found anywhere else. You can have all the money in the world, you're not gonna have it. I'm not going to have the life that he gives to us. That's what he's talking about here. It's pretty amazing. I'm not even worthy. He realizes, Jesus, I'm not even worthy for you to come under my, into my home. And so he's appealing to, to this goodness. There's this goodness and greatness of God that is, he's appealing to. Now, now, why would we do that? Why would we live our lives and be so sold out and be fully devoted to him? Why would we do that? Because, well, you need to understand the gospel. Let me give you the gospel message. The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe have everlasting life. Not just a quantity of life, a quality of life. We have, we have God, we have him. He's the greatest gift, he gives himself to us. We can know him, we can experience him. We have relationship with God. That's, that's what that means. And, and I love, and I've used this many times before, how do you come to terms with someone who has given his life completely for you without you giving your life completely to him? That's the gospel, that's Christianity. So, so here's the deal, here's the big question. Wake up. Come on, here we go. How do I know I'm more like this centurion and less like these religious leaders. Because it's very subtle. How do I know the difference between the two? This is how you know. A Christian, a Christian forever feels indebted to God for all that he's done for you. And you live your life with joyful gratitude. And nothing can ever take that away from you. To where religious people, religious people live more motivated out of, out of more out of, they're either fear or pride. They're either, well, I better get my act together. I want to protect myself. That's fear because God's going to get me. Or pride to promote yourself. Look at what a great person I am. And they, they live with a, a attitude of entitlement that says, God owes me. God owes me. That's what they're saying. This, this centurion, the, the religious leaders are saying about the centurion, hey, he's, he's worthy for you to do these things. You owe him. You owe him a good life. You owe him this healing for his servant. And it's so, so crazy subtle that I actually hear Christians say things like this to me. When they go through crisis, it'll go something like this. What good is going to church, reading your Bible, praying? I've done all that, and, and this, is, this is how I get treated? This is what I experience? Wait, 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 time out. That's moralism. You missed the big E on the I chart. It's called, he's called Jesus. You have him. If you have him, and you understand the implications of that, oh my goodness, it go, he go, goes beyond your wildest dreams. There's no life or love or liberty that you've ever experienced 
like what you've experienced in him. And that's why there's this, if your life never, from this point on in your life, once you've committed your life to Christ, if it goes from bad to ugly, it doesn't matter because you have him. And he's more than enough. See, when you begin to understand that, you're getting a big view of who Jesus is. You're beginning to say, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter. If I've got you in my life, I can face anything. I can go through anything. And not only that, my life is not my own. It's been bought with a price. You've purchased me, and God, you're the one that calls the shots in my life anyway, so I surrender my life completely to you. you see, you're getting it. That's what it means. Trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. There's commitment. My life's yours, God. Oh, my goodness. I'm gonna live for you. I, I, okay. I, I can't even put it into words sometimes. I'm just overwhelmed by this. I can't believe that I get to do what I do every week. I'm getting old. I stumble around up here, forget words, and I'm telling you, this gets sweeter. What I'm talking about here is so, so beyond your wildest dreams. I wish, I wish you could understand that. That's right. I wish you could understand that. I wish you could understand that. I don't think we get it, though. I, I just don't think. I see a lot of Christians wandering around. And they're upset at God. They're angry at the real God because he won't give them their counterfeit God that they can't live without. See, the only thing that can take that joy, that indescribable and indestructible joy away from you as a result of this relationship with God is idolatry. Idolatry is loving anything more than you love God. And believe me, you love your kids more than you love God. You love your job more than you love God. You love whatever, your stuff more than you love God, and that stuff is taken from you, it's gonna upset you extremely. It's gonna devastate you because that has, that's your counterfeit God. It's a substitute God, and God is a means to get those things. And now that you don't have those things, you're shaking your fist at God. Does that make sense to you? You guys, you guys understand that? You, you need to desperately, this is gonna bring such psychological and spiritual healing to your heart if you could understand that. You need to fall in love with Jesus. You need to get to know him. You need to walk with him. You need to give your life to him. That's true saving faith. And regardless of what goes down, you can still find your deepest satisfaction in him. In fact, you'll find even greater satisfaction in him when times get even more difficult. So, see, the difference between the two is that just, it's, it's, you can have a Christian and a religious person sitting in the same service in here, weekend service. They can both be trying to live by the Ten Commandments. They can both go to small groups. They can both attend regularly, read their Bibles, pray for totally two different reasons. One's motivated out of love. The other one's motivated out of fear or pride. The religious person is motivated out of fear and pride. I'm gonna protect myself because God's gonna get me or I'm gonna promote myself. Because, this, because he's gonna give me the good life that I've always wanted. See, if you follow Jesus, if you serve Jesus, if you obey Jesus because he makes life better, you married him for his money, man. You, we don't follow him, we don't serve him, we don't obey him because he makes life better. We follow him, we serve him, we obey him because he's better than life. His love is better than life, Psalm 63.3. And um, so true Christian faith is, is truth about the personal work of Jesus Christ entering the head, igniting the heart, outworking through the hands. Okay. 
Now we got the, the second part of this because it's really talking about the object of faith and I think that we need to understand this. Uh, here's the next point on your notes, the object of faith. We see that in the second story. Faith is not a feeling, a force, or a formula, but fellowship, relationship with Christ Jesus. The reason why I kind of pounded that so hard is because we got TV preachers out there talking about if you give money to God, he owes you then and he's gonna bless you. If you do these things, if, it's almost becomes like this formula that you work. Oh, you didn't work the formula. Oh, you got suffering in your life. Well, you just lack faith, or you must have sin in your life, or you must not give enough money to God. God doesn't owe us anything. If you had any concept whatsoever of what he's already given to us, his son, that's enough. That's beyond our wildest dreams. You don't manipulate God. You can't control God. He's way beyond us. This centurion's getting a glimpse of this. I'm not even worthy for him to show up in my home. I mean, he's starting to get the attitude, a great attitude like John the Baptist. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelaces. If you had any idea who this is, oh my goodness. This is out of this world. I think we have such a, a, a small view of God, and that's because of American preachers who are preaching a big view of you and a small view of God. We need to have a bigger view of God because a big view of God will get you through anything. And, and that's what we need. That's what we want. That's what I long for. And so faith is not a feeling, a force, or a formula, but fellowship. It's relationship with Christ Jesus. We see this fellowship in both of these stories Hebrews 11, 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Whoever comes to him must believe that he exists and he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So you believe that he exists and then you begin to make him the, the pursuit, the passion, the priority of your life. It tells us in, in John 17, 3, for this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The word know is not just know about God, it's to, to experience him. It's, it's to it's to transfer, as I said here, it is the transferring of your basic and fundamental life trust from, from your goodness or from whatever you've, you've built your life on to his goodness, to Christ's goodness. It's to have relationship with him. Relationships are really about, fellowship is mutual giving and receiving of love and truth. All healthy relationships will have a mutual giving and receiving of love and truth. There'll be times in your life when you just are overwhelmed by his love and you have him speaking to you. There's, there's times, it should be regularly, in fact daily, where you speak to him your love and you, you pour your heart out to him and he pours truth into your heart and he showers you with his love, he lavishes you with his love. That's a healthy relationship. Here's the next point, so that's what, Faith is fellowship. By the way, I said force because the, the health and wealth gospel actually teaches. I, only, I could probably go through a whole list of names that are in that category, but I'm not going to do it. You need to figure it out on your own. You need to figure this out on your own and be careful about the people you listen to. Because they're not helping you. Because they give you a false idea of what faith is. Faith is not a, a force and your word's a container of that force. Faith is relationship with God. Like somehow you're going to go around and pronounce, you're going to do this and you're going to do that and you're going to make things happen because you, what are you, a mini, mini Jesus? A mini God? You don't do that. You can't do that. And that's what oftentimes they'll define faith wrongly. It's not a feeling. It's not a force. It's not a formula. It's fellowship with God. It's relationship with God. I see a lot of people troubled over that because they don't understand even what faith is. It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that matters most. How much faith did the centurion need to have his servant healed? Just enough to call Jesus. 
How much faith did the mom have? How much faith did this mom have? She didn't have any. It didn't say. It doesn't say one thing about her faith. It doesn't say anything. You know what it tells me? Is that Jesus can work with or without our faith because he's sovereign. And he can invade someone's circumstance whether they believe or they don't believe. He's sovereign. He's the one that calls the shots. He's not dependent upon us. We just get to be a part of of what he's doing when we begin to engage with him and come into a relationship with him. He will use us powerfully. It's amazing. It's nothing quite like it. And yet, he's not dependent upon us. He's a sovereign God that makes it very clear here. Matthew 17, 20, Jesus says, mustard seed faith can move mountains. Luke 17, 5 through 6, the disciples are saying, Jesus, increase our faith. And Jesus says, mustard seed faith can do miraculous. How big is mustard seed faith? Pretty small. What is he saying? Not the size of your faith, it's the object of your faith that matters most. Let me give you an illustration here, see if you can track with this. Two mountain climbers suddenly trip and fall onto a ledge, and there are only two ways off the ledge. There's a a little rocky projection over to the left. They could step on to get back up to the secure path, and then there's a, a little rocky projection over to the right they could step on to get back up to the secure path. So they got one on the left, one on the right. The one climber says, I know that the one on the left, the one to the left will hold us up. I know that, I have no doubts, I'm filled with assurance, that's the way. I'm going to step that way. The other climber says, ah, I don't know, I'm not sure, I think that's the right way, but, but I don't know, and I'm scared to death, oh my goodness, I, I, I don't believe it, I, I think I'm going to have to step the other way to the right. The first climber steps to the left, it's an unstable rock, and he falls to his death. The second climber steps to his right, and it's just fine, and he's saved. Who was saved, the man who believed with all of his heart? No, the man who believed in the right rock. (laughs) It's not the perfection of your faith, it's the direction of your faith. The one that took the, the, the stronger rock was shaken up, was scared, didn't know, and still took and picked the right rock. It's putting your faith in the right rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the size of your faith. It's not the strength of your faith. It's the object of your faith. Oh, by the way, you want to grow your faith? Yeah. I'm glad you asked that question so that I can answer it for you. Yeah. You get to know the object of your faith. You get to know the object of your faith. Spend time with him. Here's the next point in your notes. Your faith will rise or fall with your confidence in your Savior's goodness and greatness. We see that in his, his wise love in verse 13, his unlimited power in verse 14. Psalm 9, 9 through 10, it says, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. So the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know his name, those who know his character, those who get to know him, those who spend time with him, those who know his name, will trust in him. Those who know his name will trust in him because he has never forsaken those who seek him. He has never forsaken those who seek him. Proverbs 18.10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and are safe. 
See, the more you get to know him, the more you will trust him. How many have ever noticed that you, you, there's certain people that the more you get to know him, the less you trust him? <laughs> Jesus isn't like that. When I see people freaking out and they don't, they're not trusting, they're having a hard time, it's, you just need to spend some time with him. Get to know him. Spend some time in his word. Hang out with other fired up Christians. And as you get to know him, as you walk with him, oh my goodness, over time, you will get to know him. So let me ask you this question. What if he doesn't come through as you had hoped he would? What if he doesn't come through as you had hoped he would? You'll have to come back next weekend for the answer. Because I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about pain Friday, the day of pain, day of perplexity Saturday, how you get through pain, perplexity, to the day of joy Sunday, resurrection. You have to come back. But let me give you last fill in the blank here. Spiritual disciplines plus the work of the Holy Spirit plus, guess what, trials and temptations. It's in the midst of trials and temptations. Spiritual disciplines are studying the Bible, praying, hanging out with other Christians, coming to church regularly, and the Holy Spirit making those truths real to our hearts. And so when we go through difficulties, we have the equity to drop on to get through those tough times. I think, let me read to you as we prepare our hearts for communion here this morning. Let me read to you, I believe this, I love this song. I love this song. We sing it here and we've sang different versions of this song here at Desert Breeze, but you've heard this song before. It's a, it's a hymn, it's an old hymn, and I think it describes for us faith. I think it helps us to understand faith. No matter what you're going through this morning, listen to what it says. It's called it's Solid Rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Oh my goodness, there's not a stronger foundation. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I'm not putting my trust in my job. I don't put it in my marriage. I don't put it in my kids. That's what he's saying. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. It gets better, listen to this. When darkness veils his lovely face. How many have ever had that experience before? When darkness veils his lovely face, the face of our Savior. Man, I don't even see him. Where is he? What's going on here? When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, when the winds are blowing your head off, when things are out of control, my anchor holds within the veil. You have intimacy. You have intimacy with God through Jesus Christ. You have all that you need through Christ. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Let's pray. So Jesus, we... We acknowledge you as the author and perfecter of our faith. We believe that you are who you say you are. Your word is truth, and it reveals you as our only hope of salvation. We believe your promises, walking by faith and not by sight. We renounce our pride in our pretensions of self-righteousness, and we come to you in repentance and faith. 
We trust your death to give us life. We praise you for the gift of salvation. We pray these things in your holy and beautiful name. Amen. There's three stations. Find your way up to one of these stations. Take the cups back to your seat, and then we will talk about this. Also, you can work through those faith statements. Maybe one of these faith statements will speak to your heart this morning. I gave you five faith statements that are really practical in how we live out our faith in our lives. So what is the Lord's Supper? Christ commanded all Christians to eat the bread and to drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him and his death. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of the presence of God in our midst, bringing us into communion with God and with one another, feeding and nourishing our souls as we connect with him through these elements. It also anticipates the day when we will eat and drink with Christ in his Father's kingdom. So let me pray. So bread of life, we take the Lord's Supper in reverent obedience. We do not want to receive it unworthily, so we come in repentance and faith Help us to forgive the sins of those who have sinned against us, especially the believers with whom we share the bread and the, and the cup. May our partaking of this meal proclaim your saving death and our desperate need of it. In Jesus' name, amen. 
1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. So as you exit this place and embark upon a new week and we head back here for Easter weekend. May you lay aside everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles you and may you run the race that is set before you with perseverance, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. It's, it's about him. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And as you do that, may your heart be filled with an indescribable and indestructible joy as you learn more and more to live for his glory and his glory alone. We pray those things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys. Amen.